And I think it's important to understand our philosophy too. I mean, we have a very high safety bar. This is tr- a truly, truly autonomous vehicle. There is no safety driver. There is there are no ways to manually control the vehicle. And so we 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 really think about redundancy, the modalities, how they come together, and apply that to the quantifiable approach and understanding that uh, uh, in addition, not all miles are born equal for us because what we see in uh, Foster City versus what we see in San Francisco, especially uh, in the financial district is very different. And we have to be able to handle all of those plus the long tail. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Senior Transportation Reporter at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and also the Director of Special Operations for Argo AI, but I do not represent them here today. And I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the Communications Director for Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story uh, Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, uh, if I can remember the title of my own book. I am a little bit uh, distracted at this moment because I'm extremely excited. Um, this this was recorded uh, a little bit, you know, a little while ago. Um, this is coming out now in, in, in early January. This was recorded uh, a few weeks earlier. Um, the day after a company called Zooks unleashed uh, its vehicle on the world or, or revealed it to the world. Um, and so I'm still super excited about that. And of course, I'm even more excited about the fact that we are lucky enough to have both uh, Zooks' CEO, Aisha Evans, and their CTO, Jesse Levinson, both with us uh, for a full episode together. Uh, this is amazing. Uh, Aisha, Jesse, welcome to the Atonicast. Thank you for having us. We appreciate it. Good to be back. I think this might be my third time. You get you get a you get like a special award or jacket or something. I think Jesse for for being on uh, the Atonicast so often. I don't know if anybody's ever been on three times before. Hmm. David yeah, Zipper. Sure. David Zipper. Yeah, maybe. 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 Well, but I not think many. I think it's interesting Ed, that you said unleashed. The vehicle. So I'm going to ask Aisha if that's the way she'd want to be thinking about uh, the vehicle. And also, I want to know if a little bit of a silly question, but have you given the vehicle a name? <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I don't know about unleash. I think uh, our tone is more um, confident but humble. So I think we revealed it. Uh, it's been six years in the making, and I've been a part of the journey the last two years. And uh, it's, uh, it feels good to show people what we've been up to and the type of company uh, that we are, the professionalism and, and the journey in uh, uh, reinventing our personal uh, transportation, the beginning of that journey, making it cleaner, safer, and more enjoyable for everyone. And then the name is Zooks. Um, we don't have a specific name that could change uh, in, the, in the future, I suppose. But right now it's Zooks. And I have been accused of uh, calling her a she. That I will give you. I noticed that in your video, and I actually was, I liked that. Uh, but do you have a pet name for it? Is there like a, the, do the engineers have a little <laughs> nickname for it? You know they do. I just don't know if you want to share it. Yeah, I, we can share it. Uh, we, um, so it's called, uh, th- this particular one is VH6B. Uh, it's our second full prototype of our production intent vehicle. And yes, uh, it stands for vaporware horseshit, and that one I have to let Jesse tell you how that happened because I wasn't, <laughs> when I it took me I think a few six or seven months before I said, but hey, dude, so what's the VH? And I was like, oh my god, are we gonna hide that? He's like, no, we're gonna we've owned it and uh, taking it to heart. So there you go. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and where does it come from? So uh, at the very, very, very beginning of Zooks, uh, Jalopnik wrote, I think the very first article ever on Zooks, and they called the concept vaporware horseshit uh, <laughs> because there wasn't actually a thing yet uh, or even quite a real company. And, uh, you know, then Tim and I, Tim and I incorporated Zooks in California in July 2014 and very shortly thereafter started working on our first physical prototype. And uh, I was joking with him that it would be funny if we uh, named our vehicles VH, you know, one, two, three, four, and so on. And uh, he he liked the idea, so we we sort of went with it, and they've they've stuck for all of these years. 
That's great. That's amazing. We were, we were, we were happy though, because uh, Jalopnik has been following us uh, and they've been skeptics for a long time, but they, they've written a couple articles in the last week or two. Uh, and they've they've decided that we've graduated to not vapor or horse shit. So we're very proud of ourselves. I love a good Jalopnik headline. I'll tell you that much. Absolutely. And um, but this this vehicle, I mean, uh, so actually, someone just tweeted um, the other day when when you showed you know the the vehicle for the first time. Um, someone tweeted um, a, a photo of it. And then also a, a a very very early rendering that Zooks had released, and like these were wildly different vehicles. Um, you know, could you could you talk about that contrast or or sort of how you maybe got from some of those early sketches or ideas to to the vehicle that we we're seeing today? Sure. And Kirsten and I talked about that yesterday as well. We did. We did. <laughs> TechCrunch article. Uh, but basically, the uh, those those super early uh, renderings were of a kind of a more like a sports car type of a vehicle. And we thought that, you know, someday it would be really cool for like a, you know, high-end luxury kind of executive uh, version of it to, to be more of like a sports car shape. Uh, but that was actually never intended to be one of our first products. Uh, ever since the very beginning that we've been working on this, we had in mind more of that kind of a pod-shaped carriage type of a vehicle. And I can vouch for that because uh, um, first company, All Hands, uh, when I joined, we actually uh, presented the 2014 pitch uh, that had a little bit of a video and, uh, and graphics, and uh, it was already uh, the shape of the vehicle today. And a lot of the concepts are exactly the same. We've made a little, a few adjustments here and there, but the consistency has been remarkable. Aisha, I, I, I want to, you know, talk about the vehicle, of course, but I've always been curious about your decision to go to Zooks. You were at Intel before. Um, you know, a company that's been around for a long time. And um, now that it's been a couple of years, just to get your view on why Zooks and when you first walked in the door and you had that first all hands meeting and you looked around, were you uh, excited or sort of asking yourself, what did I get myself into? Mm-hmm. I start with the, with the end. I'm not going to uh, lie and say, uh, I'm going to be candid. Uh, Please do. It's not that I haven't had a moment of regret, but I haven't had more of an hour of regret. Uh, I can tell you that I haven't had a single full day of regret. Uh, this has been uh, uh, one of the best decisions uh, of my life, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, look, I was at uh, at Intel, and you know, I had almost decided to leave one once before. And then I had a one-on-one with myself that I was really having fun at Intel because I wasn't part of the big CPU machine. I had a lot of fun roles, shall we say, but I was getting a lot of phone calls about doing something different and I had been there for a while. And then uh, after I decided to stay at Intel, I basically said to myself, I'm not going to take another role at a big company. Been there, done that, same, you know what, different day. And so I informed all of the recruiters that call everybody in the Valley that uh, I was not going to leave uh, to take uh, a job at a big company. And then they said, well, what could we call you for? And they met my list. They basically said, I basically said, it needs to be something worthy. I mean, uh, at this stage of my career, I work for meaning and purpose. Uh, It needs to be something uh, private because uh, being an African-American woman in high tech, when you're in the public domain at a high rank. There are a lot of, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the company and there are too many demands on your time. And I have two kids that uh, I want to see. Uh, so it needed to be private. It needed to be a, a founder or, or a group of founders that I fell in work love with. Uh, and that needed somebody like me to get to market and to get to scale and sort of the discipline of uh, complex hardware, software execution but uh, in a way that uh, was because they felt like it and they, they knew that's what they needed, not because a board told them that's what they needed. And it needed to be in, uh, in Silicon Valley. And I needed to just enjoy the mission and knew that I could contribute and uh, that I would fit in well. And when they called about Zooks, I'm not going to, again, I'm going to be candid. First couple of phone calls, I was like, ah, sounds uh, complicated. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of other choice words. But then a couple of people that I really trust, I have a great support system and a great network, said, no, I think you should talk to these guys. And so I met a few board members. And then uh, finally, 
I met uh, Jesse and I, I don't know what happened. Maybe he can explain it to you. We just clicked, literally. We talked for about an hour and a half and then talked many, many more time, times after that. And yeah, I fell in love with the thing. And then after the Christmas break, I'm like, let's go. If not this, then what? This is worthy. Uh, this has a lot of benefits to society. The technology is forward looking and fun. I can see what I bring to the table. I like the people. Let's go. Let's do this. Jesse, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. It was a horrible decision. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's been amazing. Um, you know, the the uh, recruiting process was uh, was challenging and uh, at times frustrating. Not because I didn't want a CEO. In fact, I was very much like, hey, you know, I bring some great things to the table, but there's a lot of things I've never done before. Uh, and there are people who have built and scaled, you know, engineering teams and ship products and large quantities. And I've never done that. And I'd love to learn, you know, how to do that and work with somebody who's done that before. Um, but, you know, we, we interviewed a bunch of candidates who, you know, maybe their resume looked reasonable, but you could just tell that they didn't have the intellectual curiosity uh, or, or the, you know, the vision or, or just the drive to do something that like there was, genuinely difficult, but important. And it was, it was super obvious to me when I met Aisha that she had all of those qualities. And I had actually heard an interview with her a few, few years earlier on a non-tech, which is a, a tech uh, website that I frequent often. And I remember being really impressed by her and then, you know, not hearing much about her since then, but when her name popped up, you know, on the, on the, uh, recruiting, uh, website thing that the, um, firm had, had put together. I was like, wait a second. I, re I remember her. Um, and I remember them telling me like, yeah, but you know, good luck with that. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, she's amazing, but you know, I don't think she'll be interested. And I was like, no, no, but we have to try. Um, and so, yeah, she, uh, she ended up agreeing to talk to us, which was great. And yeah, we, like she said, we just really, really connected. And it was, it was pretty clear to both of us very quickly that this was something that we would enjoy doing together. And it's been truly phenomenal getting to work with her and learn from her and help run the company with her because, um, you know, what we're doing is incredibly hard and it takes a very diverse collection of people from all over the world, from so many different backgrounds to put something like this together and make it function. And I'm very, very lucky and fortunate that she chose us. Um, I'll hand it over to Ed and Alex here in a moment, but I did want to ask a question that I already asked you, Jesse, but I think that we have a lot of engineers and founders who listen to the show and uh, they may have been in this spot before, which is in that process of, of seeking funding and um, either having a difficulty uh, getting funding for a variety of reasons. Um, and that happened to Zooks. And, and the important thing to understand is that Zooks isn't trying to do one thing. It's not trying to do two things. It's trying to do like five things. Um, all difficult on its own, which is the operations, the ownership of a robotaxi service, building the, so the, the software stack, building the vehicle from the ground up, all of these things. So very capitally intensive. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about both of you. I'd, I'd love to hear both perspectives of, of the past year leading up to, you know, finally being able to show this vehicle, but the sort of scarier moments where it wasn't really clear if Zooks would continue in the way that you had intended on it prior to Amazon stepping in? Okay. I'll, I'm happy to go first. Look, I mean, it, it was a difficult year. Um, um, I, 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 I wear my, my gender, sorry. So yeah, uh, March when uh, we received uh, a lot of the parts for the vehicle and uh, they were sitting uh, in crates and literally the same week, the shelter-in-place order hit, and uh, we knew uh, we wanted to build it and get it driving. Yeah, I, I came home and I, I was in tears. I'm not going to. I own that. And I was like, goodness gracious, how how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it in the and make it? We weren't really never in danger of fully dying, meaning disappearing and whatever. But uh, how are we going to make it in the in the form that uh, we want to make it? Um, but at the same time, you know, in those moments, you also get a lot of clarity. Uh, I've quoted Andy Grove and his theory on companies during crisis and um, emerging stronger. And we had a lot of clarity. The mission is, is we, I mean, this vision is incredible. It's, it's, you don't get an opportunity in life to work on something like that. And then the mission and the strategy are sound. We don't think we're doing many things. We actually think we're one of the most focused company in the AV space. We're, we, we feel that it takes uh, 
in order to get um, this working, uh, you need a purpose-built vehicle that is architected and designed for AI to drive and in the safest and simplified, simpler, simpler, simpler way. And then you look at what, what are the components. So we're not gonna, doing a generic stack that's going to work on every car. That's not us. We're not an OEM, meaning we're trying to build cars to sell them to people. We're building a thing that is integrated and we take the best parts of AI, robotics, um, EV, and uh, sort of vehicle engineering, bringing them together. And for us, the benefit to society is also key. And so operating a fleet so that when I'm not using it, instead of uh, sitting down uh, and depreciating 90, 96% of the time and using space, somebody else is using it. And we also think that that's best for the current infrastructure of cities, which is going to remain the same. As far as fundraising, look, it, it's been a tough ride. Uh, no question about it, but we, we actually, we don't talk about this often because we're sort of on to the, to the next thing. Uh, at the time when we made the decision to go with, uh, with Amazon, which I'm sure that topic will come up uh, in this, uh, in this episode, uh, we, we had three choices, three clear choices. We had two decent rounds, uh, and then, um, uh, and then uh, Amazon, but we looked at this is going to be a long journey. We want the mission to uh, to come all the way. I mean, I want to see a bunch of Zooks running around, picking up, dropping off people in all these major cities that have a real estate footage problem and also a congestion problem, not to mention losing so many lives every year. And that's what we wanted to make happen. And we happened to find somebody who, yes, had the capital, that's really important, but more importantly, has the long-term orientation, has done it before, and uh, was in on it in, I mean, they got it immediately. And that's why we went for that. So it's been a character building year. How's that? Uh, I have a question. The Zooks vehicle uh, is in the design language of toaster vehicles is, I'm going to say the only one that's cool. And I can say that um, I, it looks it, it, like how I would imagine the vehicles look like from a science fiction film made real. I buy that. But I'm curious. It also looks a lot more expensive to build than a lot of the other prototypes you see in the sector, which have, whether their sensors retrofitted or uh, vehicles that are designed specifically for those sensors, this ground up vehicle looks like it's going to be costly. What is the logic behind sticking with that vision? Well, what you have to consider is the use case. So we are not selling these vehicles to consumers, as you know. If you wanted to buy your own Zooks, it would be fairly expensive, and most people probably wouldn't be able to afford one. But the whole point with robo-taxis and unlocking mobility as a service is that it's just that. It's mobility as a service. It's a much better use of resources economically and environmentally when you get to amortize the environmental and economic cost of the vehicle over people using it and paying for it all day long. So when you look at it from that perspective, the fixed costs of the vehicle are much less significant. If you figure out how much does the vehicle's cost, uh, you know, contribute to each individual ride or each individual minute or each individual mile, it's a it's a relatively small amount, even though the vehicle costs a bit more. And so what we realized even back in 2014 is engineering a little bit more redundancy, a little bit more capabilities on the sensor and compute side, uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of a nicer customer experience. These are things that really only add pennies to the ride cost, uh, but can make a significant difference to the safety, to the reliability, to the redundancy, to the lifespan of the vehicle. Um, and, and so overall, we think those are really, really good trade-offs. This is still going to be markedly cheaper than taking, uh, for example, an Uber or Lyft with a human driver. And I, I think I'm going to say it like uh, I normally say to my friends and family when they're like, what is it you do again? We understand what you are. What did you do? We sell, we're going to sell rides. This is important. We're not selling vehicles to people. We are selling rides to people. Yeah. And, and I'm, first of all, I mean, if, if this wasn't already clear, I, I love the way this vehicle looks. Um, and I'm really excited to, to actually see it in person and, and to ride in it. Um, maybe sort of a variation of what Alex is, is asking um, is, you know, are, are AVs a, a premium thing? So well, I guess, so first of all, is Zooks's you know, positioning in the market, uh, is it more premium than sort of just, you know, a market that is is really trying to find the lowest cost uh, way to get from point A to point B? Um, and sort of where does the, you know, 
if it is sort of at, at some some level of premium, sort of what are the advantages? What are the unique things that that a ride in a Zooks is going to be offering um, that you won't necessarily get from, say, a human driven ride ride hailing you know trip or something like that? Well, I think we need I think we need to remember that this is still early days for autonomy and you know autonomous mobility as a service. So we don't have all the answers yet in terms of how the market dynamics will play out. But again, because the cost of the vehicle contributes very, very little to the overall cost of the uh, ride, we we believe that you know making a slightly differentiated customer experience is something that is worth at least you know a few cents. Uh, we're, we're not making a luxury product here. The idea is not that this is something for rich people to get around cities. In fact, the idea is really to make transportation more affordable and more accessible and safer and cleaner for almost everybody. So that's what we're trying to do here. And we do not view this as a premium or a luxury product. Uh, absolutely, you know, it's going to be a great experience. And we do think people care about that. But our goal is to actually lower the cost of mobility and make it more accessible. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, one of your investors is uh, Lux Capital. And there's a guy named Josh Wolf, for anyone in the audience who doesn't know Lux Capital, who's a very interesting guy. And he's very outspoken about the companies he invests in. He, he tweeted recently that um, he felt, I, I think, uh, uh, he <laughs> sold too soon or, or sold the company too soon. Um, and he said this right after seeing the vehicle. Uh, before the deal with Amazon, did among the other companies you talked to, did anyone walk in the door and say, we'll, do, we'll make a deal, but you've got to change X? And what was X? No, um, there wasn't. Um I mean, we, you know how it is when, uh, when you're an entrepreneur, you receive a lot of advice. Mm -hmm. So we did receive a lot of advice from the interesting to the ridiculous to the, I don't even want to hear it. Uh, but no, that wasn't the case. In all cases, in all options that we have, uh, we had, we were continuing our mission, uh, as laid out. I think the thing that that's maybe confusing to people is we had, uh, VH6A. We told you this one is VH6B inside, meaning from an engineering standpoint. And it, it was already decent and, and running around, but it was missing some really important things that uh, we needed to um, fine-tune and optimize. And so let's just set the record straight. The vehicle that everybody is looking at right now and that is driving around and that we think is the first purpose-built, fully autonomous, fully electric, bi-directional, symmetrical with a high safety bar, we think that's key. The one you're looking at was in crates and parts in March. Yeah. Um, so this isn't, and and I'm, you know, this isn't even just right. So a lot of car companies now are are making sort of right. The EV skateboard is a, a, a term that people are are um, becoming increasingly familiar with. Um, and you know that the, the idea is, you know, you have the the battery on the floor and and the drive units and that's all sort of one thing and you just put the the top hat or the body um uh, onto that um but that's not what you're doing right even even your your basic architecture this is not something that's shared with some other electric vehicle is it no it's not we we built this architecture really from the ground up to be an autonomous people mover and we were then able to make some choices and some trade-offs that really ideally optimize for our use case one thing you'll notice about our vehicle, for example, is that it's very small on the outside. Uh, it's about 40 inches shorter than a Toyota Corolla, which is actually a comparison that I just read a couple of days ago. I hadn't made that specific one myself, but it's pretty amazing to think about that, right? I mean, a Corolla is not exactly a large vehicle, and our vehicle is a full 40 inches shorter than that, which makes it very maneuverable around cities. It's great to get into tight parking places for pickup and drop off and just generally being able to make its way around a dense urban environment. At the same time, we were also able to maximize the interior space and make it really comfortable for up to four passengers. And doing all of that while optimizing the battery sizing, remember we have a significantly bigger battery than other EVs on the market because we want to be able to drive all day and all night long on a single charge. Then you have to think about where the sensors go. You have to think about bi-directionality and four-wheel steering. And when you pull that all together, there really wasn't some off-the-shelf EV platform or EV skateboard that was going to work for our needs. And so we really worked on that ourselves. Fortunately, we have suppliers all over the world who build most of the components. So it's not like we had to 
reinvent the concept of an electric car and the pieces in it. But the overall architecture is ours. And uh, we really we really think it serves our needs better than anything else on the market. Yeah. And if you just really quick here, sorry, if you go to zooks.com slash vehicle, there's there's a really cool graphic kind of at the bottom of that page that that shows you. And like, this really is not your typical EV skateboard. So um, this yeah, is not, not. just uh, yeah talk here. You know, I think about it. And if, if you think about it, the, the first thing is it's, it's a people mover. Okay. So it's for riders. So room inside the vehicle for the riders and their comfort and experience is key. It's fully autonomous and it's electric. So symmetry makes a lot of sense. And then it has to be a small footprint because you're, uh, you're going uh, for cities, which is where the demand is, at least for a long time. And then you start thinking, how do I maximize cubes? And then the design makes a lot of sense. How, how is the manufacturing going to work? You, you mentioned in March, this, these were in crates, but I, I imagine eventually you aren't going to want the Zooks team necessarily assembling them all, or maybe they will. How, walk me through as you begin to scale. And I understand that there is some, a bit of a timeline on that. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But in the long run, who will manufacture the Zooks vehicles for Zooks? So in the very long run, meaning hundreds of thousands and millions, I don't know. Could be us, could be somebody else. We'll make that decision along the way um, because who knows how the, the market will uh, evolve. Uh, in the short run, we have the ability of uh, uh, manufacturing. And remember, for us, manufacturing is really a final assembly of less than 20 mega components. And so in the short run, we can make 10 to 15,000 of them at our Fremont uh, facility. And uh, we have the concept of a line that does that. Uh, today, it's a mini line because we're making uh, tens of them as opposed to um, um, uh, tens of thousands or tens of thousands. So right now, we're, making, we're building them ourselves. And when, we have the, when we've earned the opportunity to build hundreds of thousands or millions, then we'll make the decision. And, and we're okay to to partner with somebody who is uh, philosophically aligned with us. Uh, I'm curious about the, uh, the, I saw in one of the news stories that the vehicle um, is capable of 75 miles per hour. Uh, can you talk about um, w- the regulatory issues and whether or not the vehicle is FMVSS compliant? Mm. Sure. Um, yeah, we've designed our vehicle to comply with the FMVSS standards uh, and uh Part of that, you know, for us is is a vehicle that can go more than 25 miles an hour. It turns out that if you can only go 25 miles an hour, uh, although the average speed in cities, to be fair, is certainly lower than 25 miles an hour in many cases, uh, you're going to be pretty constrained if that's the maximum speed of your vehicle. Uh, And furthermore, in many cities, if you can't go on the freeway, that's also going to really limit the number of routes that you can efficiently take. So We've worked for a long time to make sure that our vehicle is capable of operating at highway speeds. Now, that doesn't mean it can go, you know, 130 miles an hour. It doesn't mean that we're going to be competing on zero to 60 times because, again, this is not a car that we sell. Uh, but as a as a ride hailing vehicle, we think that the specs make a lot of sense. Jesse, I'd asked you this before, and we had a super limited time in previously. So maybe you can explain it to me again, because I always thought and I uh, maybe I'm totally wrong. That if you ha- didn't have a steering wheel, you wouldn't pass that, or you wouldn't be FMVSS compliant, and you would need an exemption. So, how does that work? Um, can you walk me through that? May I take that, please? Of maybe, course. Yes, maybe, please. Yeah, maybe that'll be. <laughs> this, this really requires sort of opening up the aperture. Uh, yes, uh, what is required from an FMVSS standpoint is very clear in the field of homologation and uh, uh, basically a vehicle being uh, street legal. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Uh, we could not find anywhere where it says you must have a steering wheel. It does talk about being able to steer. So I would recommend that, uh, or I would um, uh, basically uh, uh, propose that uh, it's important to read the FMVSS requirements very clearly. And right now we feel that, uh, and we are confident and we have experts who are parts of uh, that ecosystem and who are very experienced uh, when it comes to that field. 
and we started with them years ago. So this is not something we just uh, woke up uh, at, during the last stretch and realized. Uh, we feel we are confident that this vehicle uh, will be uh, able to uh, get on public roads during and with the current um, regulatory environment, including the FMVSS requirements. That's fascinating to me because there are certainly other companies who have said that they cannot do this because they don't have an exemption, which leads me to ask, to want to ask them questions <laughs> more, maybe more than my questions for you, which is what, why not? Um, so it just, it's interesting to see that, that, that the regulatory excuse isn't an excuse for Zooks. It's, it's, um, it's in, in your, in the company's view, uh, you're able to move forward. Whereas other companies have, have said that, you know, well, we can't because of the regulatory problem. Well, we all have different viewpoints about this uh, industry. I can't comment on uh, competitors or other companies, but um, what I can tell you is that when we also said that you needed a purpose-built vehicle uh, for, to make it uh, best for and easiest and safest for AI to drive, uh, I wasn't yet with uh, Jesse and Co, but I'm told that a lot of people thought that was crazy. And it seems like lately people are coming uh, uh, to that point of view more and more. So I was going to say, it, it probably doesn't hurt with uh, this particular sort of safety regulation issue um, that you have a former NHTSA administrator as your head of uh, of safety innovation. And um, I certainly, I always enjoy um, speaking uh Talking to Mark Roskin, um, and and maybe we should have him on and 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 sort of go into some of these details. But there's something like your press release mentions like over a hundred safety innovations, um, you know, in the vehicle, which I assume means you know not the the stack itself. Um, could you just give us and and again, hopefully we'll be able to, to to go chapter and verse with Mark on this at some point in the future. But could you give us a sense of some of those? Um, uh, what some of those innovations are, the kinds of things um, that you're doing that that apparently haven't really been done before as a way to keep passengers safe? Sure. So there's there's a few different uh, vectors here. One is that it's a totally new vehicle shape and vehicle design and vehicle architecture. So if you look at the symmetrical seating, one of the things that we can do is we can ensure the same crash safety for all four occupants of the vehicle. And again, because you know every other car on the road has forward-facing seats, you actually get different crash performance in the front seats than you get in the rear seats. And when you buy a car today that advertises five-star crash safety, it's actually only referring to the results from the front seats, not the rear seats. And in general, the rear seats are not as safe as the front seats. So some of our innovations are centered around how do you re-architect the vehicle in a world where you have carriage seating, and then you really want to optimally protect all four passengers. And a lot of those have to do with our novel airbag design. We have a uh, double horseshoe kind of design as well as side airbags, and they really envelop the passengers and prevent them from running into anything uh, inside the vehicle. It's, it's a totally new approach to airbags, which makes sense because, again, the configuration of the vehicle inside is totally different from cars today. Um, there's a lot as well uh, in terms of you know active safety. You can imagine things we can do with active suspension. You can imagine things we can do where the AI might be able to get a sense right before a collision that you know a collision is about to occur, and we might not be able to avoid the collision because somebody's driving right into us. But we can do other things, like for example, pre-tensioning the seatbelts. There's a lot of invent. There's a lot of in, uh, inventions and innovations around the seatbelts uh, in the in the era of autonomous driving that people haven't done before. So yeah, it's a it's a very long list, and you know we like to talk about how we're taking a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach to safety. And a lot of those are on the AI side, and obviously trying to avoid crashes as much as possible. But it's also important to accept the fact that when you're on a public road, you can't completely control the behavior of other road users. And so you have to make the vehicle as safe as possible if somebody else runs into you. And so we've done that as well. Yeah. And, and one of the the pieces, uh, I don't know if this is classified as one of those 100 safety innovations, but it's a really fascinating thing. I feel like a couple of years ago, there was sort of a lot of talk about this and there hasn't been as much lately, but it's this idea of the vehicle communicating with, with people outside of, of it, um, bystanders, uh, with sound and light. Um, can you 
give us a sense. And, and again, maybe this is something where we need to, you know, see a video come out to really get it. But um, if you just give us a sense of, of what uh, that that's like, um, maybe an example of, of how it, of how it might communicate. Yeah. That's something we've also been working on for six years now, believe it or not. So some of the earliest concepts for our vehicles involved using light and sound to communicate with other road users and definitely fall in the safety innovation category as well. Uh, one of the features that we haven't talked as much about in the last uh, week, but is still very much part of our story, is an audio system uh, where on each front of the vehicle, remember it's symmetrical, so we don't explicitly have a front or a back, but on each, each end of the vehicle, we have a 32 speaker array that's able to use beam forming to create directional audio. And so what that allows us to do is literally beam audio in a particular direction. So if we sense, for example, that a pedestrian might be distracted uh, and maybe is walking into the road and doesn't notice us, we can shoot sound in their direction and alert them without honking a horn that's omnidirectional and bothers everybody else on the road. And so that's something we've been perfecting for five or six years now, and it is part of our vehicle and it's tightly integrated with the AI stack. And so it's one of these things where, you know, it wouldn't really make any sense on a regular car because when would you ever use a directional horn? But if you link it up to the AI system and the prediction system with the perception system, talk to the motion planning system, and then that talks to the audio system, we can, we can do things that have never been done before. And we are actually excited to see how much of a difference that makes in the field. I feel like, I feel like the, the turn to audio means it's time for Alex to get in here. Uh, every you know, autonomous vehicle developer uh, has to <laughs> decide whether they want to interface with existing platforms like Uber uh, and Lyft, or if they want to build, you know, their own platform. You guys have said you want to build everything, um, and since the acquisition, you have stated more than once that you will remain a standalone entity. Uh, but but surely it, it would seem to make sense if you're gonna try to revolutionize so many things, why not go all out and say, put uh, Zook's vehicles on like Amazon Prime, given how many other components of the Amazon uh, ecosystem lend themselves to, well, delivery and convenience? <laughs> focus, focus, focus. Um, um, there's still a lot of work to do from a testing and uh, safety standpoint uh, to uh, accomplish sort of uh, the first part of the mission, which is, by the way, a, a big part from, from also from a business standpoint. People pay more to move themselves than they pay to move anything else, food, packages, or what have you. And so we want to establish that and establish that foundation and earn that. And obviously, once that is done or when you get closer to that, uh, we can move other things and we can also integrate with other features and ecosystems. Focus, focus, focus. The thing about Zook that was my biggest surprise when I came in from the outside, you hear, oh, they're trying to do three things or five things or no, we're extremely focused. Whatever it takes to get this mission to be accomplished in terms of moving people. But we understand that we are developing uh, a set of technologies and acquiring uh, a set of knowledge and experience that is applicable to other things, but don't lose focus. You start shooting in all directions. I mean, you know, I read sometimes, well, people are doing this and that and adding, I don't know, trucking and delivery. That's not us. The, the core fundamental foundation is hard enough. Let's get that done. And I called it earn the opportunity to then look at the adjacencies and integration with other ecosystems. Does that mean that I, that you're going to directly market the Zooks, you're marketing the Zooks brand like sep as it's separately or because I'm an Amazon Prime customer, will I just get 50 rides a year? We haven't had that type of conversation, but as you can see, Zooks is marketed separately today. Yes, um, I've noticed Amazon sometimes amplifies and what have you. And by the way, this is no different from uh, my, my, my son does Twitch and didn't know that Twitch was an Amazon company, for example. And so uh, today, it, that's what it is. Now, will there be opportunities in the future to um, integrate uh, cross ecosystems? Definitely. But my goodness, won't I love the opportunity to first earn that? When you when you say that, it makes me think of when the cross opportunities. I mean, 
when people think of Amazon, we think of packages, right? On-demand delivery. And I look at the Zooks vehicle and, and yes, it is certainly designed to seat for people, but I could also envision it holding, being a mobile store or holding or delivering goods without jumping too far ahead. I mean, is this something that would still allow you to remain focused on the primary mission of moving people and that packages could maybe someday be a part of of that focus? Someday, yes. I mean, yes, it's a very uh, modular uh, vehicle. There's no question about it. And uh, it could do other things by removing the seating allows you to do other things. There's no question about it. But focus, focus first. Get the people moving, uh, which establishes a nice business. You know, this is capital intensive. We take it personally that we will return that capital and create growth. And with that will come the adjacencies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really surprised that Alex didn't ask anything about audio. So yeah. um, Alex, if you don't have a question, I mean, you talked what, about- What question do you think I was going to ask? I don't know. I mean, you're very into audio, like as a hobby, as something that you enjoy, that you are a bit of an expert on. You have no questions for them. Well, and the Zooks vehicle has an audio player, but I was actually just about to ask, there's no sort of, I'm not immediately seeing sort of a a bigger like video focused screen for sort of in-ride entertainment. Um, I guess I'm, I'm kind of curious about, about why why music, but, but not video. I mean, clearly, right. Amazon could, could clearly provide both if, if that's what you wanted. Well, you have to think about what we've optimized our vehicle for. And really that is, you know, short to medium length rides in cities. So this is not like a, hey, let's go take a four hour trip and watch a couple of videos along the way. It's really for moving around cities. And, you know, we're talking like five, 10, 15, 20 minute trips. And so honestly, if you look at if you look at people's behaviors, when they get in these vehicles, they're mostly going to be on their phones or on their iPads. They're they're not going to necessarily be wanting to watch whatever screen we've put into this vehicle. And so what our, our approach has been to create a, a relatively smaller screen for each customer, so all four passengers, and they can control the audio. We think the audio experience is very important. Uh, they can control the climate. They can look at their trip, that kind of stuff. But but we're not really big on the idea of watching movies you know, for these 5, 10, or 15-minute rides and Frankly, you have to worry about getting car sick if you're trying to watch, you know, screen that's 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 you know off to the side or something. So that's just not the approach we've taken. We think people have their own devices and are most comfortable and will spend most of their time using those. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about on the voice side, though. Um, I mean, a fun question is how and who is going to be the voice that communicates? Are we going to have something eventually like Waze, where you'll have different options? Um, but more importantly when it comes to voice and other means of making your vehicles more accessible. So to potentially to blind uh, passengers or people with other disabilities who maybe use a wheelchair, how are you thinking about voice in terms of accessibility and other elements of the design that would make it more accessible? That's a great question. So voice is a wonderful way to communicate with the vehicle. And we are confident that we'll be able to really, you know, improve accessibility for people with uh, visual impairment by creating voice interfaces uh, to to interact with the vehicle. Uh, And similarly, for people who have trouble hearing, uh, we can really do everything visually using your phone uh, and or the uh, screens in the vehicle. Um, In general, we're really excited for this technology to make transportation more accessible to more people. Uh, Our first product does not serve every single person's needs in the community. Um, that's something that we are cognizant of. But at the same time, you know, we have to you know, make some choices where um, we, we really think it's important that the, the vehicle that we start off with is maneuverable and relatively compact. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much harder AI problem if you have a huge vehicle that you need to move around a dense urban environment. And so you know, in the long term, we are definitely excited to expand uh, our fleet and have different shapes and sizes of vehicles that serve everybody. Um, but some of that will have to wait uh, until future products. And I think maybe we can, it's okay. It's not breaking news or anything. We, we, have in, we are engaging as we speak with different communities um, to talk about their needs, what's important to them. So the research part of it, 
And we also have some concepts uh, in place. Uh, it's just not something we've announced or fully integrated into uh, into the into the product. But I can tell you that we're constantly discussing the needs of different populations and different demographics. Um, I, we had a discussion at some point, I think a year and a half ago, where we were talking about pickup and drop off and rages. And I was like, hey, 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 what, what if I'm in San Francisco on uh, high heels on a Saturday night? You know, don't make me walk to the pickup, please. Make it as tight <laughs> as possible. So mm-hmm. talk about all these things, engage with the communities. And again, the platform is very modular and scalable. And uh, again, super focused. Start somewhere, build a foundation, and then expand from there. Right. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but when you start talking about um, both of you sort of touched on this, which is these communities, right? And use cases. So going out to dinner and not wanting to walk to the static uh, pickup drop-off location, um, maybe I'm willing to pay more at that community, but also the people with disabil- peoples with disabilities community and just other school children. You know, there's all these different communities so right now you have the one Zooks, but if I'm kind of connecting, reading between the lines a little bit from what Jesse said and what you said, Aisha, that potentially someday you could see different form, the vehicle taking different shapes and sizes, or maybe different sizes to meet the needs of the, these particular communities. Would that be a correct that's absolutely a correct statement. Um, you know, we are very excited because this first product that we revealed um, recently, we think will serve, you know, potentially, you know, as many as hundreds of millions of people, uh, which is pretty cool for a single product. But but by no means is that the end of our product roadmap or our vision. Uh, fundamentally, we are a robotics transportation company, and there's a lot more uh, in store for us in the future. And uh, you'll have to stay tuned for that. But we are very excited about what's to come and you will see different form factors and different shapes over time. So so we've been talking for a while now and um, we still have yet to actually discuss uh, where you are with with autonomy. And Jesse, the last time uh, you and I spoke, uh, it was right after a ride um, it, that was one of the more uh exciting, frankly, uh, uh, AV ride in a good way. Uh, not not scary, exciting. Uh, uh, rides uh, through through downtown San Francisco. And I mean, I'd never seen um, an AV handle some of the, the things that I'd seen. And, and we talked a little bit about some of the technologies um, that enable that. I think particularly, um, you know, I, I know you all have, um, uh, now have a, a, a your first driverless permit. Um, and so I'm curious sort of, uh, you know, and, and we're trying to get as many people to, to sort of explain their thinking about, about that, that step to driverless. Um, what does that take what you know how do you uh prove to yourself that you're ready to take this this really dramatic step and i think you know once you ride in a fully driverless vehicle like you realize what a big what a big difference it is um but i'm just curious sort of what's your philosophy as you as you move towards that driverless about mm-hmm. um you know how how you how you take that step the right way yeah well there's really two halves to that and they're they're both kind of equally important so the first half is you need a framework for basically taking what you have built from a, from a hardware perspective, architecture, from a software, from a service perspective, and quantifying how safe it is. And part of that is done by driving a lot of miles, but that can't be the only answer. Because, you know, for example, humans drive about 100 million miles per fatality in the United States. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we wish, we wish that there were far fewer uh, deaths caused by humans. But on the other hand, 100 million miles is still kind of a lot of miles. And so if you only drove miles to show that you were safe, you'd have to drive actually billions of miles. And that's not feasible, uh, not only because it's just too many miles, but also because then every single time you changed anything, you know, you change a line of code, where are you going to go drive another 3 billion miles? So yeah. that, that doesn't work. And so you have to augment all the real world miles you drive with a simulation environment that can test corner cases and really reproducibly demonstrate that you can handle the entire library of scenarios that you need to be able to handle. And so the first half is building that framework or those set of frameworks so that for a given configuration of the vehicle and hardware and software, you can actually quantify how safe it is and correlate that against real world driving. And then the other half is not only do you have to be able to 
quantify how safe you are, but you also have to be safe enough, right? So it wouldn't be sufficient to be very confident in how safe you are, but then be dangerous. Like that would, that would not be something you'd want to put on the road. Um, but it also wouldn't be good enough to think that, Hey, you know what? Like this is probably safe enough, but we don't really know. Let's find out. Like that's not an, that's not an acceptable approach either. So before you can put these vehicles on the road, you need both halves. You need to be able to say, these vehicles are significantly safer than humans. And we, we know that's true because we've done all this detailed quantitative analysis and extensive correlation between all the data we've collected in real life and the simulation of these corner cases and combinations of failures that could occur once in a while. And so those are the two halves that we're really hard at work on right now. And again, a bulk of the problem is really doing those two things. Uh, it's easy to sort of trivialize those or to focus on, hey, we did a demo um, and demos are great. Um, but, you know, human psychology is is dangerous. If you go for a great ride uh, and it's an hour long and it works, you're like, OK, this seems like it's basically solved. Um, but that's probably not true, because, again, you have to be able to drive for hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of hours without anything bad happening. So that's really what we're focused on right now. And I think it's important to understand our philosophy, too. I mean, we have a very high safety bar. This is tr- a truly, truly autonomous vehicle. There is no safety driver. There is, there are no ways to manually control the vehicle. And so we, we, we really think about redundancy, the modalities, how they come together and apply that to the quantifiable approach and understanding that, uh, uh, in addition, not all miles are born equal for us because what we see in uh, Foster City versus what we see in San Francisco, especially uh, in the financial district is very different. And we have to be able to handle all of those plus the long tail. Um, I know we're out of time, so thank you so much for joining us. But I'm wondering when you start to deploy, um, are there are you going to tackle the sort of easier um, domains within San Francisco first, or will you be everywhere? What what is going to drive that decision of where you? choose to initially deploy? Or are you just going to go, Hey, we're doing the whole, we're doing the whole city right now. <laughs> um, we, we actually have, uh, some of our engineers who are listening are going to laugh. We have this notion of tiny, small, medium, large scale, rinse and repeat. So you can, uh, you can expect something gradual, but, uh, at a, at a faster rate than people imagine. Well, thank you, Aisha and Jesse for joining us. Um, I wish we could have you on all the time, um, but but we're thankful we're we're thankful for this time that you gave us. So, um, thank you to our listeners again for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you both.